This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are these microphones on? Can we... No? Can you hear us? Me, 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 me. Me. Yeah. What's up, Seattle? Now I'm scared. Who's that empty row? Who's Who's that fucking empty row? Lights up. I want all those names. What'd you say? Dead bodies... The, the fucking reserve family is a real bunch of dicks, that's, that's for sure. Crazy. Whose yeah. family is that? I don't, I don't know. It's, the, it's uh, Jim and Donna Neptune, and they always get <laughs> 15 seats at every mm-hmm. show that mm-hmm. they do. Oh my God, it's so good to be here with you guys. This is so exciting. We, uh, this is the very last night of our weekend tour, first tour ever. That's, yes. And we're here. We're wrapping it down with yeah. Seattle. Yeah. Thank God. Best yeah. for last. Uh, and just in time, because we thought it would be a good idea to wear the same uh-huh. dresses yeah. for, for the whole leg of the Western tour. Yep. So... No. You wouldn't cheer for it if you could smell it. Uh-huh. These, uh, I love them. They're going straight into the hotel room trash when I get home. Yeah. I mean. It's all filth now. It's yeah. all ruined. This feels like a dress. When I first put it on the first night, I was like, I'm a gorgeous princess. And tonight <laughs> I'm like, I feel like Harold's mother from Harold and Maude. <laughs> it, fe- it feels like gross polyester that an old bitch would wear. <laughs> And I'm, I'm really mad at you oh, about no. it. That's but horrible. pockets! What? Find me. Find me. Find my light. Find me. Follow me. <laughs> no. Bye, Karen. Come on. Do this with me, like, guys. No. They won't participate. No. You won't do it. Refuses. Can't Refuses to work. There it is. There he is. Refuses there I to am. work with you. And... Oh! She was just gonna keep going. Until... There's someone up there that's so mad right they now. They fucking have this in the fucking so email. angry. Um, yeah, we should wear different dresses every night now. I'm. How about okay. pants and old shirts? Fucking, let's just wear whatever we want. I'm not sure. The dress thing may have been sarcastic at first, and then now <laughs> we have to like weirdly commit to it. Like it's our tour, and we have to be fancy in yeah. theaters. And it's like, no. well, you're not. Yeah. Look at you guys. Yeah, you know what? 
that we just the night that we did Seattle, we fucking decided to wear whatever the fuck we wanted. I'm gonna start. <laughs> Feel that. Guys. Feel that freedom. Oh, Feel it. I'm so relieved. I'm never wearing a bra again. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking just can't. And I think I'm like past the point of not being able to wear a bra anymore. But I don't care. How long did that take you? <laughs> just, like, just made it. I came home one day and Vince was like, oh, where were you? Were you out? And I was, were you around people? And I was like, he's like, I can see through your shirt. <laughs> Fuck them. Like, I don't care. <laughs> but I just fucking can't do it. I mean. It's just, I should take it off. Anyways, hi. Hi. Um, oh. Yeah, you've, you just went down into a hole there. Oh, just gonna, <laughs> goodbye. Um, I should, but I shouldn't. Has anyone ever thrown their bra into the audience and not the audience throwing their bra onto the stage? Maybe. I bet they have, like, uh... They want a $14 Target bra. Yeah. That smells... So, Karen, you texted uh, I me. I also, you can tell it's the end of the tour because my fingernails <laughs> look like the ones Catherine Martin saw in Buffalo Bill's well. <laughs> can you see them? Good fucking it's, I don't know what right I've there. been doing, but literally it's like, I look like I've been trying to climb my way out of a murderer's basement. <laughs> that was a great reference. Like, I really dig the... You just did. Yeah, that's what I do for a living. Thank you. Oh. Uh, uh, so you texted me when we got to our hotel and you were like, and I was like, this hotel. And you were like, I think it used to be a hospital. And I thought you were joking. And then I checked into my room and I think it used to be a hospital. I think it used to be a hospital, everybody. (laughs) It smells a little bit like, uh, haunted bleach. (laughs) And like, yeah, there's a, in the bathroom, the bathroom door has one of those like, um, what's like the ship windows? Yes. That's round. Uh-huh. And I think it's for like to make sure your patient isn't like sneaking drugs. Yeah. So like the nurse can look in and, Hello, are you okay? <laughs> Don't shiv yourself with that soap. It's, it's not allowed. It's very rehab. It's rehabby. This is Diet Coke. So. It's rehabby. There's also, um, there's kind of a feel to it. I uh, was sitting in there typing, as we like to do before shows, mm-hmm. and um, for, for a while, so that the lights kind of went dark, uh, and I hadn't turned any lights on, Oof. and then in the hallway, a child screamed, <laughs> and I almost, I was like, one of them, with a bunk, because it doesn't, um, there's no carpeting. No, I heard clonking upstairs, and I was like, that'd be funny if it was a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> But it's just there's no carpeting. But did you see there's a giant pillow on the bed that says, sleep with me? And I'm like, oh, that's my sleep podcast that I listen to. So maybe, they, maybe they're fans of that podcast. <laughs> the insomniacs here know what I'm talking about. What? What? Just the idea that your hotel would be like, I think I know what podcast she likes. <laughs> Sewing a pillow. Aww. When did you make that reservation? Three I'm days staying. ago? Yeah. <laughs> sewing, sewing all night. I'm staying there again. <laughs> I mean, we've been given weirder gifts. Am I wrong? Uh, so this is my favorite murder. That's Hi, Karen. everybody. Thanks for being here. No, you're freaking me oh, out. Oh, you're into it now. Now you like doing light stuff. Okay. <laughs> good to know. That's so scary. Like, we can't really see anyone, which is good, because this is scary. And it feels like when, like, when, um, like, Large Marge makes her face all scary. <laughs> like, like, when the lights... Or no, when he has to, like... <laughs> it's just one, one lady yeah. with a huge face yeah. in the middle. It's like, oh, fuck. I, I don't, I don't want to see that. I want to <laughs> pretend that this is not real. 
It's fun. It's totally fun. It's... <laughs> we're in a fight, ladies and gentlemen. We're in a fight. Um, when we were upstairs, there's a record player, and I put on the record that was there, which was like a K-Tel... I think it was called, like, Emotions or something. And there was all these songs from the 80s that were, like, every song from my junior high dance. And so I was kind of getting, a, like, an acid oh. stomach. And... <laughs> Georgia was like doing something else. Like it seemed like she wasn't paying attention at all. And then all of a sudden, there was a song on, and it was Sticks. It was a Sticks song. I can't remember what it was. And all of a sudden, Georgia snaps up and goes, "What is this? She doesn't even have a good voice." <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad. She sucked. It made me feel like I was in a grocery store, like a sad grocery store yeah. aisle. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Sticks fans. Just a ballad where I sing like this. <laughs> That's all no. it was in the 80s. That's just, all we had. No. I don't. I don't need that. We wanted more. We had Color Me Bad just to slow dance to. Oh. That's how old I am. Oh. Yeah. I was blackout drunk for Color Me Bad. <laughs> it's probably I mean, up here so a couple times. Yeah, it was fun. Oh, this is the other... I didn't start out on this tour wearing these shoes with a dress. I, that probably wouldn't be my oh, first yeah, choice, but I was on. like, fuck it, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. I had, like, huge heels for a while. You had heels on. Fuck what? that, man. For who? Fuck that. <laughs> what am I doing? No offense. Um, what... Uh, yeah. What else? Let's regroup. <laughs> Let's just refocus. <laughs> I th- okay. We um, we did a Vancouver show last night, which was I think one guy's. Oh, that's right. There's and a wagon train that came down from Vancouver yeah. that's at this show now. I think they're over there. Guess what? <laughs> so at the end of the show, we were like going to have some of these like to release and stuff, the live shows, and then they were like, "That didn't work. We didn't get the recording, so that was an exclusive show. So we're gonna maybe tonight, you guys." things will happen and this will be an exclusive show too but yeah they came to us after and they're like it just didn't record and we're just like well it is a podcast so So, we'll just tell everybody about it yeah so if you get a call we're gonna be like episode 58 here's basically how it went it was so good so I go Best show. And then George is like... And then I'm like, <clears throat> say a Canadian name wrong. <laughs> oh my God, we were hilarious last night. Oh my God, best we've ever been in our it lives. It was fucking incredible. Best we've ever been. Death, jokes, everything you like. <laughs> puns, terrible puns. <laughs> Don't be puns. Stevens, like, like, you know, talking about Steven all the time. We yelled at Steven... Yelled at Steven a lot. Did you see? Magical. Someone, a bunch of people on Instagram, I I wrote a thing about like that it didn't record and everyone was like, Steven, you had one job in the comments, (laughs) like over and over and over again. He wasn't even there. He wasn't even there. He was innocently sitting in Los Angeles stroking his own mustache. (laughs) And he's like, I'm sure he was like, did I do something wrong? I guess you know what I probably did. I probably did. I, should I probably did. I'm really sorry. Sweet little Stevie. I love cats, and my name's Steven. <laughs> God bless his that's, soul. Yeah, that's a great description of him. Yeah. Um, oh, the reserved are finally. Mr. and Mrs. Reserved are finally here. So. Oh. <laughs> Can we get those? <laughs> 
real quick. All of you. Just real quick. It's my cousin Danny. Oh my god. No. Come on. Oh my god. Uh-oh. Oh no. What if she tells him he's adopted? <laughs> Here's his this time. Come on. Danny. Sit right here. You think, guys? Georgia, you think you're better than us? Hi, good, how are you? Nice to meet you. It's my cousin Danny Brown. He's the youngest of all the cousins. Aww. Well, Chris is the youngest, right? Chris oh. is the youngest. Oh, sorry. Oh, no. Um, oh, here's one. <laughs> you know, called, said, hey, I'm going to be in Seattle this weekend, too. Can I come to your show? And I said... Be on time. <laughs> Wait, will you really quickly tell the story? So I don't know if any of you, you probably aren't, but if there are any San Francisco Giants fans in the audience, couple, um, Here, Kevin. then there's problems. I know. Here, here's that. So there's, oh, good. So um, do you want to tell that story of when you, uh, you, got, you were, uh, got to be famous for 15 minutes? Do you want me to do it for you and you can oh. just chime in? You, you do tell a better story than I do. Well, <laughs> so... That was part of the genetics. <laughs> I got all those? Yeah, all of them. Um, so Danny looks like Buster Posey, who is the catcher for the San Francisco Giants. Quite a bit. To the point where, right? <laughs> I didn't know what that. A man in the front said, yeah, you do. <laughs> um, so now we know it's true. Um... So Danny worked in at, uh, it wasn't Candlestick, was it? It was, is AT&T Park. Um, he worked at the park. Then one day he was leaving and some little kids walked up and they were like, oh my God, Buster Posey, can we get an autograph? And he's like, I'm not Buster Posey. And then more people came up oh and after, God. so he just started signing autographs. <laughs> I love it. Ruined rookie cards. <laughs> Ruined them. <laughs> Some guy, like in 50 years, goes to like, it's, he's been saving it for his children for retirement, and he yeah. goes to bring it and cash it in, and they're like, this yeah. is a fucking forge, dude. We That's don't right. believe you. Zero value. Way to go. The economy collapsed. He's like, don't worry about yeah. it. Yeah. You've got this thing. Grandpa has got you. All right, you can go. You don't have to say it. <laughs> You're done roasting me. Danny Brown, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, good job. Thank you for coming to my yes. show. Yes. No, you're fine. You're fine. Let's... We'll talk about it at Christmas. I'm so glad that was your cousin. That couldn't have got better. That was great. I mean, what if it's just a person that I would have yelled at him anyway? It's what I do. It's my passion. Oh, you, you wear it well. <laughs> Thanks. Like this dress. Uh, like this goddamn dress. Should we uh, talk about murder? Should we talk about some murders? Do you want to do that? I wonder if one guy's like, oh, I didn't know that's what they were. I don't really, I'm not really into that. No, thank you, actually. No. Like, why would anyone want to talk about murder? Like, keep talking about your clogs. That's what we really, <laughs> really love. Clog cast. <laughs> clog <laughs> No. Dansko presents the clog cast. <laughs> Do not steal that. No. It's copywritten. <laughs> Our lawyer's in the reserve section. And That's right. He's writing everything down. He'll be here in 45 minutes. <laughs> Georgia, is there anything scarier than trying to log into an account 
and it tells you that your password is incorrect. And then you try again and it's the same thing. And after a few more failed attempts, big red letters appear saying you've been locked out and your account is suspended. That happens to me all the time, Karen. But scary password stories can have happy endings if you give 1Password a try. 1Password is a user-friendly password management system. It's trusted by consumers, families, small businesses, and large-scale enterprises. If you're tired of being the family member everyone texts for a streaming login or the unofficial keeper of all those shared work credentials, it's time for you to pass the torch to 1Password. They allow for secure login sharing. With 1Password, you can securely store more than just passwords, autofill everything from usernames to payment details and personal info. They'll also notify you about potential data breaches. 1Password saves everyone time. And in many cases, that save time equals money saved. The accounting department will thank you. Don't just listen to us. I mean, you should, but don't just do that. The Associated Press uses 1Password to secure their sensitive information in high-risk areas. Right now, our listeners can get a two-week free trial at onepasswordcom MFM. That's two free weeks at one, as in the number one, password.com slash mfm onepassword.com slash mfm goodbye um i think what do you want to go first do you want me to go first well i I went first last night okay then i'm gonna go first yeah we're we're off we're off a little bit yeah yeah someone um someone gave us uh while they were uh, at the show they gave us a little rock and it says k on one side and g on the other and they said you can just flip it whenever you want to (laughs) know who's gonna go first and it was like pretty brilliant i thought they could have done that on a quarter. Yeah. Now we have to carry around a big rock. So <laughs> thank you. It's pretty. It's like. Thanks. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty yeah. good sized rock. Um, okay. This one. Okay. This is what I said this to my therapist in last week, last week in therapy because I'm bad at this. I might cry. Just want to let <laughs> During this murder? Uh-huh. If you do, will you walk up stage and like really, I mean downstage and really like give it to the people? Like look up to the yes. thing? Yes. Could we get a pin spot if she starts crying? Wow. That, I know I I'm bugging you, but. I didn't know that, what that was. Yeah. All right. Because I saw a document about this. Like this is probably one of my like really young murders. You know, like young is in like early teenage. I know who it is. I know you know. Um... I saw a documentary about it. It fucking ruined me. It made me feel so awful. It's always stuck with me, partly because for 10 years it was a cold case, which you know I'm obsessed with. And so it's one of those like big things that have no answers and you always, you know, think about it and imagine what could happen. And then when you find out it gets solved, it's just so pointless and empty. It doesn't feel better, you know? So this is uh, the story of Mia Zapata. Yeah. Seattle's fucking, yeah, I might cry. Okay, so Mia Zapata is born um, in August of 1965. She's raised in Louisville, Kentucky. And she was always obsessed with music. She learned to play the guitar and piano at nine years old. She would listen to punk and jazz and everything in between. She just was obsessed with music. Um, And she had a voice like a jazz singer. It was like Janis Joplin's voice. It was amazing. And then in 1984, she goes away to college in Yellow Springs, Ohio, to study liberal arts. And there, in 1986, she meets three friends, and they start a band. It's uh, Steve Moriarty, Matt Dresner, and Joe Spleen. They form the punk band, The Gits. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And so Matt 
who was a member of the Gits, uh, said that I went to many shows where afterwards people didn't even know I was on stage because their eyes were so transfixed on Mia because she just had this amazing, amazing stage presence. He said she was like a blues singer fronting a punk band. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1988, they recorded their f- and re- self-released their unofficial debut album called Private Lubes, Lubes, Lubes. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I wish this was champagne, and it's not. Um, and, then, and then in 1989, the band relocates to Seattle. Here you are. Because there's this huge music scene that you guys have all heard of all the time, and it's just kind of getting big. Yeah. Did you guys know that you had a music scene Did you know that people like music and they came here to make it? Who knew? I thought it was just L.A. Uh, (laughs) So Mia gets a job at a local trashy dive bar, which I bet is a fucking, like, classy cocktail bar with $14 drinks at this point, (laughs) right? Um, local trashy dive bar. It was down the street from a mental hospital, which she loves. Which is our hotel. <laughs> Dude. Dude, it's true. It, I believe it. I'm not kidding. I'm going to look it up when I we get back. I fucking think you're right. <laughs> um, Mia's described as someone who commanded respect and interest immediately. Um, and she and the band members move into an abandoned house they called the Rat House in Capitol Hill District, where the band rehearsed and lived. And they earn a huge following in the local scene. They have met a lot of friends, and they kind of just, like, mesh right into the local punk scene um, in the community. And um, let's see. So Mia's described as funny and kind. She loved meeting new people. She would help friends recover from drug addiction. She took in homeless acquaintances, and she helped a lot of people through uh, various crises. She was a really open and kind person. Everyone said she was really funny and always joking and shy, but a really good friend. So during the 90s, Buzz begins to surround the Gits, and they release a bunch of singles on local independent record labels. They're known for their like powerful driving music, you know, like punk, with these amazing lyrical, uh, poetic lyrics. Lyrical, poetic lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 92... They release uh, their official debut album, Frenching the Bully, and they, their reputation gets even bigger in the, in the Seattle scene, and they begin to work on their second album called Enter the Conquering Chicken, which is titled after Mia's chicken tattoo, which represents her childhood nickname, Chicken Legs, which is adorable. Um, 93 Atlantic Records offers a single to the get, or offers to sign the gets, and they set up a national tour. And Mia was never really into the idea of getting really famous, and she, all she said she wanted to do was get a cabin in the woods, an old Jeep, and a shot, and a sheepdog to ride shotgun. Did it sound like I was gonna say, and a (laughs) a shotgun? (laughs) To shoot sheepdogs. Everybody has a dream. We're you just get to you get to have whatever you want as your dream. Spreading false rumors. <laughs> I know that's my wrong. favorite murder. It's not right. No. So just days before the tour is about to start on July seventh, nineteen ninety three, uh, Mia leaves one of her regular hangs, the Comet Tavern in Capitol Hill, which we're all going to meet at afterwards. <laughs> Um, she's looking for her boyfriend but couldn't find him and then goes to visit a friend named Tracy and Tracy says that that night uh, she was really agitated and distracted 
And Tracy urged her to stay the night at her house, but Mia said she would just take a cab home if she wanted to leave. Um, I think she was upset with her boyfriend because he wasn't around. And this is the last time that Mia's seen alive. She, they think she walked a few blocks uh, in the direction of her place or went a different way, just kind of liked to wander the city. And um, either way, a an employee at the Comet remembers her wearing her headset as she left. So it's, it's thought that she was listening to music in her Walkman and so wasn't kind of paying attention to her surroundings and not listening and didn't hear. I mean, not that she would have fucking been able to do anything anyways. Like if she hears someone, she can, you know, whatever. Okay. <laughs> and then at 3.20, uh, a sex worker discovers Mia's body in the, hundred, in the 100 block of 24th Avenue South, which is in the central district, district of Seattle. And it's kind of known as a seedy neighborhood at the time. And she's found um, in the street on her back with her arms outstretched and her legs straight and crossed. Um, and she had been beaten and strangled with the cord of her sweatshirt, which was a Gitz sweatshirt, which is like, makes that, and then I'm going to cry. Um, and she had been raped, although the police kept that part out, like, from the public for years. I'm not sure why. Then... Oh my God, Karen. You just can't turn that page. I just can't. I don't want to. We just have to stop the show. Yeah. Okay, so it's thought that she encounters her attacker around 2.15 in the morning and that she'd been killed somewhere else and then trans um, transported to the location where her body is found. And it's about two miles from the studio where her body was found, where she had been. And it's on a dead-end street, and the cops don't think she had been murdered where she was found. They thought that someone brought her to the location when, after she was dead. And there was, um, like, there's many theories of what could have happened. Um, she told her friends she was taking a cab home, so they thought that maybe one of the drivers had picked her up that night. And so they, they looked into all of them to see if anyone had picked her up, and nobody had. Um, and then a man had heard a horrifying scream, he said, uh, when he was at home near the reservoir, which ended up being three miles from where she was found. And so they thought maybe she could have walked towards the reservoir that way, which is where he heard the scream. And he, like, ran outside. He heard this scream, and it was so awful that he ran outside. The only person that was ever seriously questioned was, as a suspect, was Mia's boyfriend. And they were in the process of breaking up and he was described even by his friends as scary. Mm. Yeah. But he passes two lie detector tests and gives hair and blood samples. He shows up for every appointment. He's super cooperative. And he has a solid alibi. So he's cleared. And then the police have no suspects to question at that point. They didn't have a crime scene or witnesses. And so the case went cold. Um, and after her murder, Seattle's music community, including Nirvana and Joan Jett, helped raise $70,000 to hire a private in investigator for three years um, via benefit concerts. So, yeah, it's pretty fucking rad. So, meanwhile, police think that Mia had been killed by a random killer. Some people think that, um, and many people in the punk rock community thought that she had been killed by someone that she knows, and I remember believing that for so long when after I had heard about it. Um, 
and some people thought she that, that whoever killed her hadn't been acting alone because she was posed in the, in this Christ-like pose that someone had carried her feet and someone had carried her arms and then left her there. Um, and then also people thought it might be a serial killer because of the ritualistic pose. And also a cup from her bra was missing, so they thought maybe that the serial killer had taken it as a souvenir. Um, the private investigator funds end up drying up with no major breaks in the case. And the investigator, the private investigator, Lee Heron, she just continues to investigate on her own because she's obsessed with it, wow. which is pretty fucking cool. And then in 98, after five years of investigation, um, Seattle police say that they're no closer to solving the case than they were right after the, the murder. And for 10 years, there's this crazy suspicion and accusation and fear throughout this whole Seattle community. Everyone is just wondering who this can be and if it's going to happen again, because there's no, there's no rhyme or reason. Then 10 years later, in 2003, the Seattle police test DNA against the national database, which they had tried in 2001 and had no results. But this time there was a match. A man who had recently been forced to submit DNA um, in the database when he was arrested in Florida for burglary and domestic abuse in 2002 is matched to the DNA found at the scene, specifically the saliva from the bite marks on Mia's chest. Which, thank God, they fucking collected that in like, like 93, you know? Um, Jesus uh, Mezquia, he's 48, he's, from he's a Cuban native who lives in Florida Keys. He didn't know Mia at all, but he lived just three blocks from where her body had been found. Um, Mezquia is this huge, hulking man. I mean, if you see video of him, he's a giant. And uh, he has a history of violence and sexual assault against women. He was a drifter in the 90s, and he spent time in Seattle where uh, there was a report of indecent exposure filed against him, and it had happened near the Comet Theater within weeks of when Mia's, uh, Mia had been killed. And, but there was no known links to the two of them, so it was just a random attack, which is fucking crazy. He never testified in his own defense and still maintains his fucking innocence. And the theory is that he saw her leave the bar and followed her before he attacked her and um, drags her into his car, assaults her in the back seat. He's convicted in 2004 and sentenced to 37 years initially, which doesn't seem like enough, right? And uh, he appeals, and then he's sentenced to 36 years instead. <laughs> which is like, okay, what the fuck? Like... I just don't even, I am sorry. Um, and he's been in prison since 2003, still alive. And uh, this is, her, her dad said, um, you don't realize what forever is. You drive your daughter to school, tell your wife, have a good day, I'll see you later. But you assume you'll be together at the end of the day. But then something happens and forever is forever. It doesn't matter what you do, how you do it. How I pray, how I wish, nothing on earth is going to bring Mia back. That's sad. That's <laughs> awful. <laughs> it is. I know. I, I mean, I remember seeing that one. I think there's a forensic yeah. files of it. Because, I, right? I, because I just remember seeing it because every forensic files, that old guy narrator, it was always like... It's these random people and suddenly he's talking about like the punk scene totally. in Seattle hearing that guy talk about it 
I don't know. It was it was it was like bone chilling. Yeah. Where it's just like fuck. This is really a real thing yeah. that happened. It's not like something that happens to someone in you know Idaho. Um, yeah. It's like something you can't connect with. Like, <laughs> sorry, I don't. That's not. That wasn't a judgment. I was just yeah. trying to pick a random state. Something we have not like you know someone's mom like a mom. We, I can't identify with that except right. I have a mom, but I'm not one. But yeah, it was like you, they they showed footage on the forensic files of like the punk show, and it was like, oh, I've fucking been to those things. Well, and, I, I fucking walked drunk away from a one thousand bar, so it's just that yeah. chilling feeling yeah. of like fuck alone with headphones in. Jesus. Yeah, it's so that's really sad. Well, bye. <laughs> Take it away, Karen. And I really set you up for failure, didn't I? Nope. <laughs> you want to know why? Why? Because I'm doing Ted Bundy. Oh! I mean, right? Like, that's... Come on. This is... This is how we do yeah. it. Fucking dropping it and picking it back up. Fucking. I'm like, what is this? this here's something meaningful. There now you go. here's a super monster. Right. Here's your hometown super monster. Yeah. Congratulations. Way to go. I'm not going to cry on this one. No, no, no. Well, uh, but I am glad you did that. I think yeah. that, that means a lot. Those I, two go, That's nice. Yeah, this is a nice little. This, this is a nice pairing. Them? What are we talking about? What is this? This isn't a fucking cheese and charcuterie plate, man. <laughs> uh, did, uh, here's a funny thing. When I was looking up this stuff, uh, someone, he, on one page they said, Ted Bundy, some, sometimes known as the co-ed killer, sometimes known as the angel of decay. What? Ah! That sounds like a dentist, like what a dentist tells <laughs> you. A goth dentist? Yeah. 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 <laughs> what if there's a dentist serial killer? Then that's what that is. I mean, they're already so horrible. I mean. Um, I've never heard Ted Bundy called the angel no, of decay. It's never happened. I feel like that was like a weird U URL link and they just went to someone, someone's weird poetry page. It's like, <laughs> no, that's not. Mm -mm. Don't click on that. But as probably many of you uh, have already know and have already read, one of my favorite crime writers is Anne Rule. And, right? She's just like, she's the fucking Stephen King of true crime. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. She churned it out for years and years, God bless her soul, and her story, I wish I, here, if this, if I had all the time in the world, and I could really fucking, here's what I would do. <laughs> Let's hear it. I would now clear the stage. <laughs> I would put on an Anne Rule costume, and I would do a one-woman <laughs> show called The Stranger Beside Me. Yeah. I'd fucking sit in the audience <laughs> and yell shit at you. You'd be like, fuck you. No. I'd be yelling our quotes <laughs> at us real loud. Um, that would, because her story, so if you don't know, Anne Rule was a crime writer who in the 70s had been a cop and had become like a crime beat reporter, um, among other things. I think she still worked in the police department also in some other ways. But she also volunteered at a suicide prevention hotline. And that is where she met the amazing Mr. Ted Bundy. She worked 
side by side with him mm. on the night shift mm. at a suicide hotline. Mm. Um, and she, he was a close friend and she used to like to say if she was 10 years younger or her daughters were 15 years older, oh. she thought he was the perfect man. This is why you never let your mom set you up with anyone. That your mom. <laughs> Get, next time she tries, say, guess what, mom? Yeah. Don't pull that Ann Rule shit on me, no. mom. No. Eric from your office could be a serial killer. <laughs> also, I just love, this is my favorite kind. My favorite kind is the ones who like wear like fair isle sweaters and like, <laughs> hey, I'd love to treat you to a bottle of Chablis yeah. or whatever, where you're like, I never saw it coming. Yeah. I never, and that, he is so that way yeah. that even this woman who uh, like st herself had studied psychology, was had been a cop, all these things, did not see it, didn't see it over and over again, even when the like the, the evidence was piling up in front of her face, she'd still be like, it can't be him. It's That's crazy. It isn't him. Um, that, I just can't imagine. I mean, I guess today is different these days, but fucking fuck. But I think it's also, <laughs> you know, it's also a tribute to his insane, yeah. like, you know, whatever he was, I like to say, my favorite one to say is psychopath. Yeah. But who really knows what that means? Some Not me. get offended. The, some get offended. Some just want me to be accurate. Um, <laughs> I think he was a sexual sadist psychopath. Yeah. I think, think so? Um, I think he enjoyed, he really got off to on manipulate. Like that was part of his enjoyment is... Yes. Just li living in plain sight. And, and manipulating not, people. Yeah. And he, he was really quite something. All right, let's talk let's about it. Let's do it. So, uh, <laughs> um, so his mother, Louise Cowell, uh, he, this is how he started life. His mother got pregnant out of wedlock. Um, so he was raised to believe that his grandparents were his parents and his mother was his sister. That's fine. It's fine. <laughs> George Clooney, fuck, it didn't turn him into a serial killer. Is it George Clooney? <laughs> no. Who is it? <laughs> Who is it? You're just fucking naming people. <laughs> rumors. I'm spreading them. It did not affect Brad Pitt one bit. <laughs> What's the problem? It's someone, I swear. <laughs> Someone's yelling at Some him. famous person? Yes. Someone tell me. Bobby Flay? <laughs> oh. George Clooney, someone <laughs> Jack Nicholson, thank you, yes. For Jack real? Nicholson. Is yes. that right? Yes. Are you just picking one? I swear to God, okay. that's what I meant. Okay. Same fucking thing. Those two. He did fine with it. Exactly. Yeah. He's a psychopath, probably. Although The Shining. All yeah. right. <laughs> there were also rumors that his grandfather, who was he was raised to believe was his father, was actually his father. <gasps> That's just gossip. Stop gossiping about oh Ted Bundy. Oh my God. So, Ooh. he graduated from Woodrow Wilson High School in Tacoma in 1965. Really? Yes. The fighting murderers. <laughs> and um, <laughs> he won a scholarship to the University of Puget Sound. After two semesters, he transferred to the University of Washington. A bunch of fucking educated listeners in this audience today. They love school. <laughs> How about, and then they didn't go to college. <laughs> what? 
Then they went for a year and a half, stopped going to class, then just thought they could hide the report card. Yeah! And then just signed up for class so they could get their mom's health insurance. Yeah! All right, sorry, I'm interrupting you. Okay. Uh, after two semesters, he transferred to the University of Washington, and there he meets Stephanie Brooks, which is a pseudonym. I didn't know that for a long time. Yeah. Makes me really mad. I always thought her name was Stephanie Brooks. That's a pseudonym. Stephanie was a beautiful girl from a wealthy California family. They dated for a year. Ted is way more into her than she is into him, and eventually she graduates. She moves back home to her parents' house in California, and she breaks up with him, and she tells him... In, upon breaking up with him, that he's immature and he lacks ambition. Oof. And I'm sure that that went over well with Ted. <laughs> he's like, thank you, Stephanie. <laughs> I appreciate your candor. <laughs> and I'll take it into consideration. <laughs> no ambition, eh? <laughs> Watch this. Yeah. So... So then in 1969, right after that happens, he decides he's going to go back to his birthplace, Burlington, Vermont, visit his family. That's where he finds out he's illegitimate. Oh, but anyway, here's some maple syrup. (laughs) So he comes on back to Seattle with a spring in his step (laughs) and a thirst for blood. So, he comes back from that trip, really knuckles down, and becomes a big Republican. (laughs) Why is that the weirdest... That's like the weirdest twist for me. Yeah. Not the... Oh. Isn't that a fun twist? Huh. He was like, I know what's going to impress Stephanie. I'm going to get into politics. (laughs) Watch this. Watch me wear a red and white striped tie, Stephanie, (laughs) goddammit. So he... He runs this, the Seattle campaign office for Nelson Rockefeller's presidential run. Oof. Who? I know. <laughs> he did a great job. <laughs> so then he returns to the University of Washington. He becomes a psychology major and an honor student. And he meets a woman named Liz Kendall, who then becomes his girlfriend. He graduates um, from UW in 1972 with a degree in psychology. And that summer, he goes on a business trip to California, and he meets up with Stephanie Brooks, just to say hi, Uh. hey, what's going on? I just want to check in, see how you are. (laughs) Catch up, what have you been up to down here? (laughs) What? uh, this time, oh, I wrote this time as a motivated Republican psychology grad student with some amazing sweaters. <laughs> so they get, they actually get back together. He gets back together with her and they date for a year. His poor girl, real girlfriend at home is like, he said he was just going to have fucking margaritas with her. Uh, <laughs> Neither of them knew about each other. Yeah. So he gets back together with Stephanie Brooks, dates her very seriously for a year, is very romantic, is very lovely. At the end of the year, he proposes marriage. She says yes. And two weeks later, he breaks up with her and will not return her calls. Whoa. So what did he... That was a... He fucking vengeance dated proposed to her. If he wasn't Ted Bundy, I'd be like, fuck yeah, you did. But <laughs> No. 
really no. shines a light on that it, behavior, it does. doesn't it? It's it very, does. very destructive behavior, right. very vicious, right. cruel behavior. <laughs> I do, I do like it though a little bit. <laughs> I mean, let's. I can think of like four different people who would totally. been amazing to do totally. that too. You make them re-fall in love with you, yes. and then you're like, um, later days. Go fuck yourself. Peace out to you and yeah. your family. Remember when I was wearing this outfit? Remember this outfit? <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So, then, uh, Stephanie's devastated. This is what I wrote, and it's tasteless. Stephanie's <laughs> devastated. And as she weeps, her long brunette hair covers her face evenly on both sides. <laughs> That's right, because it's parted down the middle. No! Remember that. Remember that for later. Is that where it starts? Nope, I'm not. Right, forgot. Yeah. Freeze that. Make it, just paint a picture in your mind. You're going to want to look back at it later. Post it, posted it. Posted because almost immediately after all of those events, Ted's murderous rampage begins. And when I say murderous rampage, I'm talking about like five pages of 11-point <laughs> font rampage shit. <laughs> So let's blaze through this. Get comfy, everyone. <sighs> Shortly after midnight on January 5th, 1974, Ted Bundy breaks into the basement apartment of 18-year-old Joni Lenz, also a pseudonym, and bludgeons her with a metal rod from her own bed frame, sexually assaults her with a speculum, and leaves her for dead. She is found by her roommates the next day in a pool of blood in a coma, and she survives but has permanent brain damage. Oh, honey. One month later... Ted Bundy breaks into the room of UW student and his cousin's roommate, Linda Ann Healy. What? He knocks her unconscious, dresses her in jeans and a t-shirt, wraps her in a sheet, and carries her away. What? That's on February 1st. Now, female co-eds start disappearing at the rate of one a month. Uh, they're all young and slender with long brown hair parted down the middle. Oh. In March, Donna Gail that. Manson. What'd you say? I remember that now. Yeah. yeah. You remember from, yeah. it was like only three paragraphs no, ago. I remember. <laughs> uh, in March, Donna Ga Gail Manson, a 19-year-old student at Evergreen College in Olympia, is kidnapped and murdered. Don't be fucking cheering that. She's... <laughs> It's a wonderful uh, arts college, actually, where you, you get to give yourself your own grades. It's real, like, fucking a lot of this and a lot of this. And like, yes, Mom? Yes, no, I am learning a ton. Thank you. Thanks for the health insurance. Thanks for calling during my acid trip. Anyhow. <clears throat> In April, Susan Rancourt disappears from the campus of Central Washington State College in Ellensburg the same night, right? The same night, another female student reports being approached by a man in a cast asking for help carrying a stack of books Here to his go. Volkswagen Beetle. Here we go. Right? Two other co-eds tell the same story from three nights earlier. In May, Kathy Parks disappears from Oregon State campus in Corvallis. It's really weird. I feel like you should be omitting the college names. Poor Oregon State. They're just like, we've got to represent. <laughs> and they know it's coming. Uh, it's like four sad people up there. <laughs> we love the middle of Oregon, too. <clears throat> On June 1st, Brenda Ball leaves the Flame Tavern in Burien and is never seen again. Burien. Burien? 
Singaporean? <laughs> Who cares? I mean, seriously. Seriously. Yeah. The fact that you knew the geography of where the middle of Oregon was, <laughs> I was impressed. So, fine. Bylian? <laughs> Ten days later, in the early morning hours of June 11th, UW student Georgianne Hawkins is last seen leaving her boyfriend's dorm to take the short walk back down the alley to her sorority house. They say it was 50 yards from his door to her door, but she never arrives. Witnesses tell the police they see a man in a leg cast struggling to carry a briefcase the night before. One student reports the man asked her to help him carry the briefcase back to his Volkswagen Beetle. No. If a man ever asks you to help him carry a briefcase... Right. We've talked about this. Women and children. (laughs) If men ask you for directions, children... No. There's not... They they don't want... Adults don't need your help, children. No. And men who can't carry their own suitcases don't get to have... uh, I mean, briefcases don't get to have briefcases. Yep. That's just part of it. It's a good rule. If you've injured your arm, then you don't get to carry a briefcase. Sorry, important businessman. Put a backpack on. Take a break. (laughs) This brings us to July 17th, 1974. This is the part where when I was reading A Stranger Beside Me, this I couldn't stop reading this chapter over and over because it's so fucking fucked up. So Lake Sammamish. Sammamish. I mean, they should, they should spell it phonetically on Wikipedia <laughs> if they want podcasters to announce it correctly. <laughs> Lake Sammamish State Park in Issaquah? Yeah! <laughs> Aww. You guys are... You're fucking easily impressed, all I of mean, you. Fucking... <laughs> what a job we have. I mean... <laughs> it's ridiculous. This is like like reverse kindergarten, yeah. basically. This is like a spelling bee, but like you just can't lose. Everyone wins. Everyone gets a ribbon. That's right. I'm into it. That's fine with me. Okay. So at Lake... Oh, shit. I forgot already. Sammamish? <laughs> Sammamish! Uh... It's a beautiful holiday weekend, uh, and tons of people are there. You know, when it's sunny up here, you guys go batshit. It's like, all of a sudden, everybody's wearing the smallest bathing suit they can find, like fucking standing around at a man-made lake. So, this, there's actually pictures online you can look this up. It's so packed on this day. There's like, there's just people standing like shoulder to shoulder. It's unbelievable. And that day, two women, Janice Ott and Denise Naslin, both disappear without a trace in the middle of the day. What? So eight witnesses tell police they saw a handsome young man Woo! named Ted. What? He, he's, use, he doesn't use a pseudonym. Um, with his arm in a sling, and he and five of them were women who he asked for help unloading his sailboat from his Volkswagen. So one woman actually went with him, and as she's walking up to the Volkswagen, she's like, there ain't no sailboat over uh, here. And she was all, bye. And for her. Three witnesses said that they saw Janice Ott speaking to that same man, and they saw her leave with him. And then four hours later, Naslin disappears. Wow, he came back. He fucking killed Janice Ott. 
up in like the hills about a mile away. Oh my God. And then came back to get another woman. He is in a full on fucking psychotic frenzy. Yeah. And, but meanwhile, all like, he's, they said the, the witnesses describe him as having kind of a clipped, slightly British accent. So can you imagine? He's like fucking, he's like a werewolf rampaging. Yeah. And then he like wipes it all off and turns around. It's like, oh, hello. Yeah. Do you mind? I've got a sailboat over here. I can't, I can't get it off my. <laughs> Go on. I was a theater manager. <laughs> okay. So the police distribute flyers. Also, there's, a, there's two comparative pictures. The next weekend at that lake, oh. nobody's there. Nobody's yeah. there. But it's hilarious. Bikinis away. Yeah, that's right. Um, so the police distribute flyers. They hold a press conference describing the man witnessed. Um, Ted Bundy's girlfriend, his psychology Ooh. professor... Um, and his suicide prevention co-worker and crime writer, Ann Rule, all call the police and give his name. No. Yes. Um, and Ann Rule, in the book, she like talks about it, where she calls and says, this is crazy, and I mean, it's probably not him. But I, right. the thing is that he does have a gold Volkswagen. Jesus! His name is Ted. Oh, my God. And... And he has no sailboat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it can't be denied. Yeah. His total lack of boating. Oh, okay. So, um, oh, because they also gave his physical description. So basically, it's just staring all of them in the face, and they're like, I don't, I mean, could it be? No. Um, but it also must be really weird because she talks about in the book that he was so empathetic and he would talk to people, he would talk people off. Killing themselves for hours. He would stay on the phone. He was so empathetic. Like, he had the most amazing mask that he would wear. He was living the ultimate double life. It's fucking nuts. Okay, so, um, Ted Bundy killed both of those women. Uh, within hours of each other and both of those murders were so brutal that when their skeletal remains were found a mile from that lake Mm. there were only bone fragments left Mm. Um, and up there with them when they found those skeletal remains they also found the remains of George Ann Hawkins Um, and then just east of there on Taylor Mountain in 1975 the partial skeletal remains of the rest of the missing women were found Linda Healy, Susan Rancourt, Kathy Parks, and Brenda Ball. And Bundy claimed that Donna Manson was also buried there, but no remains of her have ever been found. Mm. So he basically had these two dumping grounds, and he used to go visit them. Uh, I don't know how he fucking found the time, but it was like, among all the other bullshit that he was doing, then he would drive up into the mountains and then just sit there with his victims' bodies. Mm. All right! (laughs) Then he decides to go to law school. Oh my god! Because he's gonna he's gonna teach that ex girlfriend a thing or two. Hi. So he moves to Salt Lake City. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> that can't. That was not sincere. Um, 
All right, I'll try to go through these fast because this, it's just so much. October 2nd, Nancy Wilcox disappears from Halliday, Utah. She was last seen riding in a Volkswagen. A little over two weeks later, 17-year-old Melissa Smith is abducted, raped, sodomized, and strangled in Midvale, and her body is found nine days later. She's the daughter of the police chief. Oof. Then 17-year-old Laura... Lara Amy disappears after leaving a Halloween party in Lehigh, and a month later, hikers find her naked, beaten, strangled body on the banks of a river in American Fork Canyon. Uh. On November 8th, Carol DeRanch is leaving Fashion Place Mall in Murray when an officer, Roseland, approaches her to tell her that her, heart, her car's been broken into mm. and that she needs to come with him to file a report. Mm-mm. So she uh, goes to the car. She sees nothing's missing, but he tells her he ha- she has to come to the station anyway. No, 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 no. Uh, and then they get into his Volkswagen. Oh, you know. He didn't have a police car? <laughs> the car that cops drive all the time. Gold Volkswagens. Um, oh, man. Fuck. Uh, on, on the way, he suddenly pulls over really fast and tries to throw handcuffs on her. <gasps> but in the frenzy, and she starts fighting him off, he puts both handcuffs on one wrist. And then as he does that, he picks up a crowbar <gasps> whoa, and tries to hit her over the head with it. But she catches it midair because her other arm is free. Um, op- then she opens the car door and rolls out uh, onto the highway oh and God. escapes from fucking <laughs> Ted Bundy. Yes! Carol! Got it, girl! Fuck yes, Carol! I mean... Yeah. All right. Thank... Okay, yes. All right. I just was going to say, it probably ruined going to the mall for a long time. (laughs) All right. That night at Viewmont High School in Bountiful, the drama club is putting on a play. (laughs) This, this ties back in. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about theater arts for a second. <laughs> so both teachers and students report seeing a man um, who approaches them to tell them that their cars have been broken into. Um, some say they see him lurking in the back of the auditorium where the play is being held. And Debbie Kent, a, c- a 17-year-old high school student, leaves the play at intermission to go pick up her brother mm. and is never seen again. Mm. Later, the investigators find a small key in that parking lot that fits the pair of handcuffs that were taken off Carol Durant. Oh, my God. Okay. So now I've interjected a story I found on Reddit. (laughs) Maybe a bad idea, but it possibly could be true. Maybe 30%. (laughs) So... This story is a guy that says his friend's parents met in their teens at the end of their first date. Uh, his friend's dad suggested that they go for a midnight hike up in Provo Canyon. Oh. He apparently knew the place since he had done a fair amount of rock climbing in the area. So the two drove up to the mouth of the canyon, started hiking under um, the light of the stars since it was a new moon. You're just at- hoping to get late at that point. Nobody fucking hikes at night. Right? I know. But they can't. It's their son. So they can't to tell him a different story. Oh, yeah. They're yeah, like, yeah. son, we loved hiking yeah. in the 70s. Yeah. Oh, we'd hike and hike all night. (laughs) Right. At some point, the dad starts getting a bad feeling. Mm. Since the pathway ahead, which uh, was going to pass under some trees, was going to be very dark. Um, So he ignores the feeling and presses on. Um, Gotta ignore those feelings. You got to. In later retelling of the story, his mom would say that she felt the same bad feeling, um, but that she didn't know... uh, 
the trail like he did, so she just trusted that he was knew what he was doing. A minute later, the dad felt that feeling even stronger, ignored it again. Mm. They walked a bit of the way into the trees when his foot hit something soft <gasps> in the middle of the path. Under the trees, though, it was too dark to see just what the soft thing was. The feeling came back stronger than ever, and instead of finding out what his foot hit, no. they both agreed to run away. No. Years later, after being married for some time, congratulations to them, they were watching an interview with the serial killer oh Ted Bundy in response God. to a question asking him to describe the time he felt closest to being caught. He explained about the night that he lured a girl into Provo Canyon, had just killed her when he heard some people coming up the trail, and that he hid in the trees oh only to watch some guy walk right into the body and for some reason just turn around and walk away. Uh Oh, man. And this is why you always bring a flashlight when you're fucking hiking at night. Yes, yes. No, yes. No, that's exactly right. Right, 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 right. That's exactly right. Also, somebody could have just watched interviews of Ted Bundy retro-engineered that entire story and be lying on Reddit. We don't know. We don't know. (laughs) There's just no way to tell. There's no way to tell. Okay, so now... uh, Ted ventures into Colorado. He's taken it to a different state. So Karen Campbell disappears from the Wildwood Inn in Snowmass, where she was vacationing with her fiancé and children. She disappeared between the elevators and the front room of her door, a span of 50 feet. Vail ski instructor Julie Cunningham disappears in March of 1975. Denise Alverson in April in Grand Junction. In May, Lynette Culver disappears in Idaho from the grounds of her junior high school. In June, Susan Curtis disappears in Utah. None of these bodies have ever been found. Back in Washington, Ted Bundy's name had made it onto four different suspect suspect lists for four different reasons. And he was finally... On the uh, t- in the top 25 list of people um, to be investigated um, when a call came in from Utah. Sorry, I just started thinking of other stuff. Uh, <laughs> what am I going to do tomorrow? Um, okay, so here's what happened. Back in Utah, Ted had failed to stop for a routine traffic violation. Um, and those routine traffic violations will always get they you. They will get you. I think from what I remember in the book, but I'm not positive, he was driving by a house. He was basically casing a house. Ooh. And a cop was like, what are you doing? Can, you're being a creep. Yeah. And then when he went to pull him over, he wouldn't pull over. And so he finally, he got him, like, got him out of the car. And then... Uh, when he searched his car, he found a crowbar, a ski mask, handcuffs, trash bags, and an ice pick. You know, car stuff. <laughs> oh, no. So Detective Jerry Thompson um, connected the Volkswagen to Carol Durant's kidnapping case, and they get a warrant to search Ted's apartment, where they find a brochure for the Wildwood Inn. And when they put him in a lineup, Carol DeRanch comes in, and as well as several of the bountiful um, high school play witnesses, mm. and they all pick him out as Officer Roseland. Whoa. So this is his first conviction, I know, only four more hours. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was typing this, I'm like, maybe I bail before he ever goes to jail? I mean, just like... 
Um, yeah, what part do I leave on? <laughs> There's no, you, you have to tell the whole thing. Yeah. So basically, here's what happens. He's tried and convicted of the kidnapping case. He's sentenced to 15 years. And they, when they were taking him to trial during the recesses, his, the officers, he was so charming and chatty and cool and chill that the officers started letting him use the law library during the recesses of his own trial. Mm. You know, just to be cool. Um, so on June 7th, one day, while he's in the library, he sees his chance, and he jumps out a second-story window. Goodbye. When he lands, he breaks his ankle, and then he runs for it. And he escapes into the mountains, and he survives for six days. He had found, he walked until he found a cabin. He rested for a little while. At one point, um, an armed citizen who was up there specifically to search for escapee Ted Bundy no. comes upon him, and... Ted talks his way out of it what? and just continues on his way. He was a slick, slightly British-accented motherfucker, this guy. That's, a, that's yes. He must have had great, like, eyes yeah. or something. What was it yeah. about Ted? Good hairline? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just a strong fucking hairline. Jesus. What the shit? Kind of, like, come, came down a little bit of a V, yeah. but not like a vampire V. Yeah. Framed his face. <laughs> just framed it up nice. Yeah. Some, some curls. Nice 70s uh, sideburns. Yeah, just a nice thick sideburn mm. here. But not threatening. No, 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 no. And like not unkempt. No, no. All right. You could, he brushed his hair 500 times every morning. <laughs> okay. He's finally recaptured, brought back to jail, immediately starts working on a new escape plan. He cuts a hole in the ceiling into the crawl space and then starts dieting. He loses weight, loses weight, loses weight till finally... Um, he, oh, the, he finds out that they're going to move, uh, the venue of his next, of the trial. So he, right now he is in the, um, I think he's in Evergreen, um, jail and it's super old fashioned. And so he's like, yeah. I gotta do it now. I can't wait anymore. So he crawls up into this crawl space, crawls across and basically goes into right above the jailer's apartment, which is part, another part of the jail, but it's like where the people work, where they actually lived mm -hmm. in the jail. Mm -hmm. He drops down into the jailer's linen closet. Mm -hmm. And luckily the jailer and his wife were at the movies that Aye. night. So he just puts on some of that guy's clothes and fucking walks out the front door. Anyway. Is it weird that I'm like, what, what was your diet? Can I? <laughs> And can I... He's just... It was super... He was super paleo. He was like one of the first paleo guys. Yeah. Do you think there's like a, a Bundy diet app? Like a <laughs> yep. Maybe. He actually invented CrossFit by s sawing the ceiling. Oh. I thought you were... By stabbing the... Oh, no, no. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's why they made that noise yeah. preemptively before they heard the rest of my hilarious joke. Okay. <laughs> Here's what he did. Uh, <laughs> so crazy. He... Hitchhikes to Vail, then he takes a bus to Denver, then he takes a plane, a plane to Chicago. He eventually ends up in Tallahassee, Florida. And this is the big fucking hideous finale that's so insane. On th at 3 a.m. on Sunday, January 15th, 1978, Ted Bundy crept into the unlocked back door of the Chi Omega sorority house at Florida oh, State University. Forgot about this part. Yeah, right? <sighs> and he bludgeoned st and strangled... Um, four sorority girls, each roommates. So he went into the first room and killed Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman. He beat Margaret to death and then uh, he'd restrained Lisa, beat Margaret to death, then 
began to beat Lisa to death and brutally raped her and then murdered her. Um, then, undetected, he snuck down the hallway mm. and did the same thing in the next room to roommates Karen Chandler and Kathy Kleiner. And then he just walked out of the house. What in the fuck? Yeah. Then... <laughs> Then he walked down the street. Everyone in the audience is like, I don't like true crime anymore. <laughs> then he walked down the street, he broke into a house, and he did the same thing to a girl named Cheryl Thomas, except she survived. Mm. Uh, yeah, he, he basically had already killed um, four women that night, and so he was getting a little tired, and he, she was fighting him, and then, and then people came up from downstairs because they heard so much banging, and he was basically like beating her with a big piece of wood. No. And, they, and he ran out, um, so she ended up surviving. Um, then on February 9th, so like a month later, he basically hides up in his weird apartment, and he's basically super crazy, and like at the end, mm -hmm. he, I mean, he probably knew he was at the end. On February 9th in Lake City, he abducted and raped a 12-year-old girl named Kimberly Leach. Oh and then he stole another Volkswagen to drive across the state. But in Pensacola, uh, an officer noticed the stolen plates and pulled him over, and he got out of the car, and then immediately started fighting with the cop. And the cop gets him down, cuffs him, gets him in the car, and Ted Bundy says to the cop, I wish you'd killed me. Uh, right? Um, so... Uh, he's charged for the Tallahassee and Lake City murders. He stands trial in Miami for the Chi Omega murders. And the Chi, uh, there was a Chi Omega member named Nita Neary who saw him leave and went to court and identified him. And that testimony, as, as well as the bite marks that he left on his victims, um, were the evidence that basically convicted him. Um, now, everyone's heard of this, but like, of course, Ted Bundy being the asshole that he is, decided he was going to represent himself in a couple of these cases. Right. So in the Kimberly Leach case, he decided he would be the lawyer. And at one point, he called former co-worker Carol Boone to the stand. And then in the middle of the um, court case, he proposed marriage to Carol Boone. She said yes, everybody. She said yes. Really? Oh, yeah. My God. They actually had con a conjugal visit, and he has a daughter. Let's not, no. Or, or he could be the grandfather. We don't know. <laughs> but the good news is he was convicted on all counts, and he was sentenced to death. And on January 24th of 1989, Ted Bundy was executed in the electric chair in Florida. Uh. <laughs> yeah. He had confessed to 30 murders, but it is estimated that there's a chance that he is responsible for the death of over 100 women. Whoa. It's fucking crazy. What and the fuck? here's a slight upturn. Not great, but whatever. Oh, first of all, um, Ted Bundy claimed that porn is the reason that he became right. a serial killer. I'm just saying, watch yourselves. <laughs> we know what you're up to. Everybody's so cavalier about porn these days. <laughs> well, it made Ted Bundy. <laughs> um, but from death row, when they were uh, looking for the Green River Killer, um, uh, Ted Bundy contacted uh, Detective Dave Reichert. <laughs> this is some local shit, huh? <laughs> yeah. We hate Dave Riker too. Yeah. <laughs> We're arrested right outside the theater. It was a setup. 
They yeah. hated him first. <laughs> Anyhow, however you feel about him, Ted Bundy called him and said, I can help you catch the Green River Killer because I know how these motherfuckers think. And then he did. What? Uh, clearly there's a problem with that I don't know I don't know what's going on Um, I bet it has to do with the Green River Killer oh so's my mom (laughs) so's everybody's mom and I still hate her so (laughs) now we move into the uh, Trump portion of the show (laughs) wrong (laughs) Oh, you. Well, we'll cap it off with this. Anne Rule had the best quote. She said, people like Ted can fool you completely. I'd been a cop. I had all that psychology, but his mask was perfect. I say that long acquaintance can help you. uh, I say that long acquaintance can help you know someone, but you can never really be sure. Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's Ted Bundy. That's your guy. Amazing. That's it? Do we have time? I, I don't know. That's it, right? Yeah. I think that's it, you guys. Yeah, that's everyone thing. Thank you so much for coming out to this show. Yeah, and thanks for being part of this. That was super, super fun. Yeah. You guys are, we love it here. It was very Thank cool. You. Thank you for being here. We're mad at you for yelling at us about Dave Riker, but we'll talk about it at a different time. (laughs) Stay sexy. And don't get 